I would say this morning, afternoon, whatever it is now, <clears throat> like I would any, please don't just assume that what I say is true. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. The, anybody, by the way, who thinks that they stand in authority over scripture, just run. Just just run and uh, get away. Um, I mean, you know, greater, brilliant, more brilliant minds than any of us have sought to attack and destroy the scriptures and have only many of which have found themselves converted. And uh, that just shows that they are smart, in my opinion. But, uh, yeah, human beings are so fallible. And so it's so beautiful to have something so unchanging and so secure and so strong an anchor uh, that we can test all things by. We are in the Gospel of Genesis, chapter 41, as we continue verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Word of God. If you turn there, please, with me. Pharaoh has had two dreams and they've terribly troubled him. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Is there anyone who doesn't have a Bible? Because we really don't want you to just stare at your hand or your phone and text during this. So, yeah, please. Thank you. Bjorn. That's awesome. Anyone else? Yeah. Thank you. Bjorn, you're the man. Or at least a man. Pharaoh has had two very disturbing dreams, both of them of a similar nature. Understand at this time again, Pharaoh is, in essence, the most influential or seemingly most powerful man on the planet. The Egyptian kingdom has reached now almost its heyday. It will right at this, about, right at this point. And uh, Pharaoh, just by virtue of his own culture, uh, he's really got trouble uh, on his hands. And part of it is because Pharaoh, by being Pharaoh, is responsible in the eyes of the Egyptians for keeping what's called the Ka, which is, in their ideas, the system or order of the universe. Um, the Greeks will ultimately say something of a similar nature when they say that there's a logic behind the universe. And if you will, the Greeks were really the original ideas behind the um, intelligent design concepts. We don't have to work with intelligent design because there's no one more intelligent than our God. And he didn't just design. He created everything with a plan. And I'm really thankful for that. But with the Egyptians, they kind of laid all of that on Pharaoh. He's a human being that essence they think is sort of, in essence, God incarnate. And he's supposed to be keeping order in the universe, which gets really fun and funky between Gen or Exodus 6 and or Exodus 3 and 12. When the whole world falls apart and you see that, well, Pharaoh is in deep cough by that point. Well, and this his dreams were. And, and again, he's a guy that believes it, what Egyptians were taught was, was that all life came from the, the Nile, um, which, by the way, means they were also sort of the originators of the idea that life came from water. Um, and and from that, he's dreaming that he's standing at the water, which is sort of the beginning of it all. And remember, he's supposed to be in charge of everything that's supposed to be a source of life. And out of it comes a bunch of cows, seven of them. And they're fat and beautiful. And all of a sudden, seven really gnarly, thin cows come out and they eat the fat cows. And you wouldn't even tell. You couldn't even tell that they even had a good meal out of it. And they're just nasty and scrawny. And he wakes up and he's like, whoa, that's a weird dream. 
Then he goes back to sleep and he has a second dream. And the second dream is agricultural. Now understand, in Egypt, what made Egypt so powerful, in essence, were two things. The power of its might militarily. And the second was, to be honest, the strength of its produce. I mean, the entire world, in essence, lived as farmers or cattle ranchers. And so, I mean, think about it. Here he was. He was the, the king of, this was part of the Theban dynasty, which means that he was the king, or right before it. So he's a king of both the north and the south, the, the lower and the higher uh, Egypt. And one of those was strong, in essence, in the bread. They were the bread basket of the area. And the second was that they were big on raising, raising cattle. So these weren't just arbitrary things. It wasn't like six fat ducks and six thin ducks. These were things that he knew he was responsible for. Uh, so with, these, with this kind of grain that comes up, seven beautiful fat, again, the same thing, seven thin. And with that, he doesn't know. And he calls all of the guys that are on staff with him to try to help him understand this dream because clearly these two dreams are really bothering him and he's just unsettled and there is a guy that happens to be sort of his chief butler the guy that drinks his wine before he hands it so that if he doesn't keel over dead it must be safe and uh, and he gives and he goes oh you know there was this guy remember when you put me in prison a couple years ago well there was this guy that could interpret dreams back then he's a hebrew guy and he'd been sort of framed for uh, some some pretty bad things that he'd never done and so the Pharaoh calls him up, gives the guy a shave, and Joseph um, is brought to Pharaoh's face. Now, Joseph, here he was. He's been in prison for at least two years. He's been in Egypt, in essence, for about 14 years. And uh, for those 14 years, he's had some time living with, uh, in the rich of Potiphar's house, which is the Pharaoh's chief bodyguard. And then the rest of it he's been spending in prison. And the Bible doesn't delineate which of those 14 years, how many were to one or the other. We just know that he's been at least two years in prison. Now, with that, he's called up and this guy's pulled out of prison. He's pulled out of the, just the, the lack of light. So imagine he's seeing light, perhaps even for the first time in many years. Uh, and he's shaved. And, and the Egyptians, you're probably aware of when they shave you, they shave, they shave every bit of you. And uh, so he comes out just sort of shining like a cue ball. And he pops into this thing and they give him some fresh clothes. And he goes, oh, well, I can't interpret dreams. But, but God can. The God that I serve, he can. And, and here's the situation. There's going to be seven years of plenty. The two dreams are one because by the mouth of more than one witness, the matter is established. So we gave you a couple so that you can say that this is something God's going to do. This isn't a possibility. This is an option A or B. This is what's going to happen. And God just did something really cool with you, Pharaoh. He just opened up the future to you to allow you to actually take part in being an influence in that future. Now, please understand, as you read the book of Revelation and several other books, you're going to see the entire future. And God didn't give you that information so you could parade yourself as more brilliant than the person next to you. With all of this information comes responsibility. And with that, we are actually then uh, challenged to make a difference as the world starts to fray at the seams. Remember those of you who were older, and I won't even say old, but older, we were told that there was... Um, Global cooling. Any of you remember those days? I was taught that in school. What I, you know, um, I would, there's a couple of things. I mean, I was taught that the earth, I think, was 10 million years old, and now it's like 100 million years old. I wasn't at school that long ago. just want to make that clear. Um, but there was, the world was all cooling, and all the scientists were saying how the, the world was just freezing on us. And if we don't do something to warm up the planet, we're in trouble. And then, of course, a few years ago, it was global warming, right? Um, so you'd like to think the world should make up its mind. Um, but one thing we could be sure of is that the world is starting to fray at the edges. Now, that is what Scripture says. The Bible had promised that. And so here it is. It's starting to gear up for the last, you know, the last couple minutes of the game. And he really wants us to step it up. 
Well, with all of that said, here is Joseph now when he's talking to Pharaoh. And what he says is, Pharaoh, here's the deal. Those fat, beautiful cows and grain, both of those things are seven beautiful years where it's going to be so plentiful. Oh, it's just going to be beautiful. But then seven years of famine are going to come. And in the seven years of famine, it's going to be so bad. It will have not, it would have looked like nothing good ever came from this place. It will be so bad. And here's the thing. God's going to bring it. This is a famine, by the way, that wasn't like, and we're going to see in a moment as we dig into the concept of famines, that this wasn't just sort of a man's been irresponsible with the planet and that we've been used too many plastic bags or whatever and now we're suffering a famine. This was a situation that God was setting up and he was setting up for a very profound reason, a couple of them. And one is he's going to raise up this Hebrew boy that just got taken out of the prison and he's going to make him, in essence, the most important man on the planet. Because it'll be this man that, in essence, in a physical way, is going to be the savior of the world. Without Joseph, without making personal contact with Joseph, you are going to die. It's just that simple. And so Joseph says, and he goes beyond just sort of interpreting the dreams. He says, well, so here's my suggestion, which, by the way, wasn't what Pharaoh asked, but he gave it anyways. He said, here's the deal. I suggest you find a man that you really trust. A man that's wise in his decision making and allow him to actually store up during these years of plenty, 20 percent of your grain. Now, Egypt, by tradition, took 10 percent of your, everything you got anyways. And so he says, just double it. So take 20 percent of everyone's grain and store it up so that when those years of those years of famine come, everybody gets porridge for seven full years. It's going to be wonderful. And so Pharaoh kind of looks and he says, well, could there be any man more? And he says, is, could there be any man other than you who has the spirit of God in him, is the term he uses. Here's why I think you should be the man. Now, that's a really strange day. I mean, this morning you were waking up with poop around you because that's what happens in prisons. And, uh, and all of a sudden now you're taken up, you were shaved, you were bathed, you were cleaned up. And now you're the second most powerful man. Uh, as Pharaoh says, you are going to be the second most powerful man, second only to me. And with that, every time even you ride by, everyone's going to have to bow. And it doesn't really matter because in the end of it all, no one's going to move a foot or a hand unless they get your permission. Now, which one of you would have thought that morning that was what was going to happen? Could you imagine somehow today something like that happens? Do you realize how quickly everything could just flip? And what we saw last week is we really kind of looked at the Lord of the plenty, the Lord of the harvest, as we saw what happened when there's that much plenty. But here becomes the harder part. If you've ever walked with Christ for any period of time, he isn't just the Lord of the plenty. He's also the Lord of the famine. And that becomes a much rougher road. And that's where we're at in our text. Look at our text. We'll read the rest of the chapter. We left off for what it's worth at verse 52. So at verse 53, it says this. Then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when the land of of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth. So Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands. 
Now, this is where we're taken. All of a sudden, now we're actually brought to those seven rough years. It's going to be in these first two years, one of the most radical things is going to take place with Joseph. He's going to be confronted by his brothers and ultimately have the honor to reconcile or to condemn them. But understand, this is not the first famine we've seen in Scripture. It was great grandpa Abraham experienced a famine in chapter 12. He went down to Egypt during that time like this. That was the time when he says, by the way, about his wife, she's my sister. And then he gets sent out of there a bit disgracefully. But he leaves with another little cookie with him, Hagar, who was an Egyptian handmaid. Perhaps you're familiar with her, the mother of Ishmael. But it was also not just Abraham, but it was also grandpa Isaac as well who during a famine, and this is in chapter 26, would then flee to the area, the Philistine area of Gerar, and he would pull that same trick. And he would actually say, sure, my wife's my sister. Now, there's a difference between the two, because with dad, mom, by the way, was, in essence, half-sister. It's a little weird, I know, but just the same. But, but Isaac has no claim to that. Nonetheless, as a result of that, he is sent out also in disgrace. Now, Joseph was not sent to Egypt because of a famine. Joseph was sold into slavery to Egypt by his brothers, but it's his brothers that will wind up going to Egypt because of the famine. And God will use that to reconcile them to his brother. That, by the way, at this point, they think must be dead. The next one we'll see, by the way, is Ruth. Perhaps you're familiar with that one. Second Samuel 2 will show us that David experienced the famine. Both Elijah and Elisha and the Yahu and the Shema. Both experienced famine. Zedekiah experienced the famine. Nehemiah, a famine as well. And then in Acts 11, for instance, some of you are familiar that there was a famine during the, the reign of Claudius because it was the church up in Antioch that decided that they were going to take some funds and bring it down to the church. Now think about this. There are two things required to actually create a famine. Either one of these can do it. One is a lack of water and the other is a lack of warmth. It's interesting because you can have a really, really hot environment. It can be scorching hot, but as long as there's adequate water, you can actually still bring forth quite a harvest. But if there's too cold, you cannot produce a harvest. And if it's too cold, you can't produce a harvest, you can't eat. Now, how do we even fathom that concept today? Think about it. Because even if there were a famine in several of the places, still we'd learn to live off of, like, you know, Debbie cakes and those kind of things, the kind of things that just are so full of artificial ingredients, they were probably all created in a lab in the first place. But sooner or later, how long would it take before a worldwide famine could hit us? The closest thing we have is we would call it a recession or a depression financially. But still in all of that, there are places in the world to this day that, let's face it, if it doesn't rain and it doesn't warm up, there's going to be nothing to eat. And I can't help but think that God set that up in a perfect way. Because understand that God does stuff in famines. Oh, let me give you this way. Three specific things that I would just say. And again, I'm going to get into our text and develop it. But let me sort of lay this ground rules out. I've learned that the, the famine, that famine in our own lives tends to be one of three things or, or a combination of them. The first is it's an indicator. Now, understand back in Deuteronomy and he said it in a couple of places. Um, one of them is in chapter 11. The other is in verse or chapter 28. God laid this out among the people. And he says, here's the deal. If you are willing to follow me, you're willing to submit to my ways. This is the Lord speaking. I will bless you with my presence, my provision and my protection. And what's interesting is every Israeli understood that because that's exactly the same promise that was offered to a husband, to a bride in his proposal. When every man, when he proposed to his wife, standing at a table with a cup in between them, is he offered three simple things. My, my, my provision, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. Second, protection. I'm going to make sure that you are protected. And third, my presence. I'm going to be with you. 
I'm not just going to sort of dish you out and just make sure you're sort of up in a tower somewhere being fed and taken care of. I'm going to make sure that you're going to, you get to be with me. That's part of the benefit of this. Now, understand, that's what God was doing with these people. He was betrothing himself to them, and he offered the same thing. So understand, when God, when you're like running from the Lord, it isn't like God baps you in the head. He removes his protection. Do you see the difference? This isn't your husband chasing you down and whacking you in the head. This is your husband not being there to protect you when you're finding yourself in some other place. That's the difference. The most amazing thing is we still want to blame God for those moments when we're running away from him. God says, look, it's quite simple. I will provide for you as long as you're willing to stay with me. Now, if you're not, then you're going to have to find provision elsewhere. Oh, there's a problem. Only I can provide. Okay, so what does that mean? You're not going to find provision. It's that simple. I mean, because this is the God who provides. So here we are running away, and all of a sudden, what do we find? We find ourselves in a place of terrible famine. God promised that. He says, look at the earlier and the latter rains. I'll provide both for you. I'll provide great harvest, so much so that your, your world will be in abundance. This isn't God saying, I want to make sure that you get the new Hummer. This is God actually saying, I'm going to make sure you're taken care of. There's a difference between getting everything you need and getting everything you want. Now, in some of our worlds, those lines are very blurred. I mean, let's be honest, probably all of our worlds. We're like, I need a new flat screen. I need, no, you don't need a new flat screen. I need the iPhone 4S, L, P, whatever. And then, you know, and it's, you know, as soon as you get it, there's going to be an iPhone 5. And it's like, I need the iPhone 5. I said, no, you don't. You don't need that. Well, follow me on this. So the, what he says in Deuteronomy 11 is, is that as long, basically, it's, it's simply like this. God says, this is my house. As long as you're willing to live with me, I'll give you all that. But you want to run away from that? You're not going to get the earlier rains. You're not going to get the latter rains. And you're going to find yourself in a terrible place of famine and hunger. Now, is that God being mean? No, that's actually God just telling you, I meant what I said. Any moment you just want to say yes and come back, I'm going to let you in. That just shows you how amazing God is. Because if you were any human being, per se, just a human being, he'd say, you leave me, you're going to starve to death, and I'll just stand here and say, I told you so. And that's just not the God of Scripture. He says, but the moment you wise up and come back, things change. And what I find is famine tends to be an indicator. And throughout all of Scripture, what you're going to find is that famines tend to be a place that when you start seeing a famine in the land of of Israel, it's because the people are just no longer serving God. They've literally traded them in. Here's the problem. It's sort of like a natural food hunger in the sense that you're going to eat something sooner or later. Because even if you're like, you know, no, 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 I won't eat that you're still going to eat something else in its place. And God gave us that appetite. And isn't it beautiful how he created that in such a simple, base way so that we can understand other areas? For instance, God has created within every human being the desire to grab a hold of something transcending, ultimately to grab a hold of him. He put within us a hunger for fellowship and a hunger for the transcending so that the two of them would merge and we would call out to him. So what we can we do, the enemy has spent all of his time just creating counterfeits. Do you see how that works? Let's get you in a lousy relationship that will be so consuming and so dominating and so domineering, you won't be able to really realize what you're, still, what you're missing. The same way that if you eat lousy things, you're going to find yourself in a very weak place. Now, perhaps you're familiar with the fact that, you know, one of the terms that, the, that those of the UK were called were limeys. Do you even know why you were called that? It's actually a good reason. Because, well, sailors were getting rickets. 
And when rickets kind of makes you all bow-legged. See, we had rickets, too, in the States. Well, it kind of looked like it. They just rode horses all the time, so they walked like that. You know what I'm saying? Well, just the same. And all the sailors were, and they were kind of trying to figure out, why is it we're all, why is it we're all walking around like this? Well, not every sailor talks like that, but just to make it a little more interesting. So, well, they said, well, here's the problem. Maybe we've been gone from the land too long. So what they would do, seriously, is they would bury these people up to their neck in the land. Which, by the way, didn't help. Then they came out and they were dirty and bow-legged. So that wasn't helping anyone. Well, that was so. Okay. Well, how do we make this better? Well, someone kind of figured out maybe you're lacking something in your diet, and it was truly the case. Rickets is created because of a lack of vitamin C. So what happened is, what kind of fruit can you take with you on boats? Limes. And that's how the term limey came about. So what would happen is you started feeling yourself going like this. You just smacked down a handful of limes. Now, that may not be your favorite food, but it did, it cured the problem. But you could eat, 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 and still get rickets because you're just not eating the right thing. Does that make sense? And God gave you an appetite for him. And you could fill yourself with all kinds of other filth and garbage. And by the time you're done with it, you're so full, you can't even eat what you need. You can't meet the appetite. And that becomes the problem. And that's what God is telling us in regards to it's an indicator. Famine tends to be the case. One of the reasons is because we have been so busy filling ourselves with idols, filling ourselves with anything other than him, that we really don't even have an appetite for him. And when the end of it all, we'll find ourselves starving to death, ironically. You can drink until you're, until you're mad. And what's interesting is, for instance, if you spent all your life and all you drank was alcohol, you will dehydrate. That's a bit ironic, isn't it? Because you could feel waterlogged, but you could still be dehydrated because alcohol actually dehydrates you. You can say, well, I've drank all day. God says, but you didn't drink the right thing. It didn't meet the need. I may have met it once, but it didn't meet a need. And so when God says, look at you, you look and you see these famines, you go, oh my goodness, they really are trading in. Now, please let me just lay, let me lay out a very simple definition for idol. Anything that God would want to change in your life that you're going to fight him over is an idol. It's just that simple. Because what he really wants to be is the architect over all of your life. Nobody knows you better. And strangely enough, nobody even loves you more. God loves you more than you love you. And I am so thankful for that. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm a bit amazed. Now, even those moments where you're like, oh, no, I hate myself. I can't stop thinking about how many. The fact that you can't stop thinking about yourself shows how much you love yourself, even though you say you hate yourself. And that's just the bottom line. And so, so just say this. So here's the first of those three things. This is an indicator. Here's the second of it. And by the way, we'll see that with a handful of things. It not only indicates, by the way, that we've traded in, but in some cases... It actually indicates that our heart's in the right place. Now, hear the difference. There is a famine within, and then there is a famine around. The issue is, when the famine is within, it's an indicator that I'm not right. When the famine is around, it's an indicator that I'm actually supposed to do something about it. The Antioch church, for instance, they gathered together and said, we're going to help out the church in Judah and Judea. That tells us it indicated something good with them. The second, by the way, is it's a motivator. Um, you think about the Gospel of Ruth. Oh, you might say the book of Ruth. It's a gospel. It's so beautiful. It's such great news. Now, in the book of Ruth, the gospel of Ruth, what we find is it was that famine that took this, this family, a woman, by the way, whose name was Naomi, which means pleasant, and her name gets changed to Mara, which means bitter. She changes her own name to that. And she leaves. Here's the ironic thing. She's in Bethlehem. Bit means house. Lechem means bread. And they leave the house of bread because there's no bread in the house of bread. That's the idea. And they go and they actually head to the Moabite territory. And it's there, by the way, that they meet Ruth. 
And Ruth, by the way, means friend. So follow this. A family goes east, meets a girl from the east, brings her back and introduces her to her redeemer. Did you get that? That's why we named our daughter Ruth, because we went east, met a girl from the east, brought her back and introduced her to our redeemer. That's the idea. Anyways, with that said, it tends to be a motivator, but I can't think of a more beautiful place than in Luke chapter 15. We know it is the story of the prodigal son. But remember how he's got all this money because he's just cashed in dad's inheritance, which, by the way, wouldn't that hurt, guys? If your son came to me and came to you and said, you know what, dad, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. Can I have your inheritance now? Which one of you felt says, oh, thank you. That's so beautiful. I'm raising you well, son. You know, but all right, take half my hair. And so off he goes with it and he squanders it. But it doesn't just say that the guy gets broke. It says, and a famine broke out and he began to be in one. He began to be very hungry. And it's at that point that he says, what am I doing here? You know, even my dad's servants have it better than this. It took a famine to motivate him to return home. And God knows how to to motivate you. Now, that was obviously a famine within as well. The third is it tends to be a separator. So it's an indicator. It's a motivator. And it's a separator. What does it separate? It separates those who aren't in the famine because God has satisfied them inside from those that are still starving to death on the outside. Might I just say this? In the book of Proverbs, it says that to the famished or starving soul, even the bitterest thing is sweet, but the satisfied soul even loathes the honeycomb. You ever been so hungry you would eat something you hate? You know, sooner or later you're going, you know, my sock is looking really good right now. I'm hungry. You know. Compare that to the other appetites God's given you. The appetite for companionship. To have a friend. To have someone you can connect with. And you're hungry. And at first, you've got standards, right? I'm going to tell you what. It's like, here's the way it is. He's got to be Christian. He's got to be in love with Jesus. He's got to be, man, he's got to be a man that reads the word every day. He's got to be a man that quotes Psalms when he speaks. He's got to be a person that's like, oh, and he's got to lead worship, too. He's got to lead worship. I mean, because I want to hear, I want to hear worship in my house. Right. And, and it's like, and it's like, oh, well, let me tell you what else. You know, he's got to be among us, the finest of men. And he writes books on what it means to be a Christian. And all that. OK. And it's like and then you're like, you know, and that's sort of like there's that horrible part of you. That's like they tell you, oh, honey, your biological clock is ticking. Right. And you're like, oh, and all of a sudden he's like, OK, was what did I say? Well, he's got to be he's got to got to call himself Christian. Right. He's got to be cute still. He's got to call himself Christian. Uh, and then it's sort of like he's got to wear a cross. Yeah, it's probably what he's got to wear a cross. Well, you can find a whole bunch of guys wearing crosses in Camden, but I don't recommend you chase after them. <laughs> I remember some of them just hanging upside down anyway. So and then after a while, it's you know what? He's got to be breathing. That's what's got to be. He's got to be breathing. Right. And what happened is you got so hungry that all of a sudden you started looking at your nasty sock and said, mm, that looks good. You know, and you know what happens? Someday you wake up after all that and you had and your stomach is sour and you ate it anyways. And then you're like, oh, what am I doing here? This is horrible. And that's what happens because he gave us these appetites for a reason. You're like, well, I'm tired of waiting for God. What about instead of waiting for God, you waited on God? There's a difference. 
When you waited for God, you decided what you wanted. And then you told God how he was supposed to come alongside you. Right? In other words, my will be done on earth like it should be in heaven. And um, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. And here are my plans. You love me and I've got a great plan for my life. Bless me. Amen. Right? And God's like, oh, I didn't realize that I was supposed to follow you as I led. You know, and I realize that that becomes every one of us to some degree. And that becomes a problem in our appetites. And the Lord has a way. But then there's the person that will drive you mental. Because to be honest, they just aren't following that. And while everyone else is learning, orange, it's the new pink. Pink, it's the new black. Black, it's the new white. Oh, pastel color, so everyone could look like Easter eggs this Easter, right? And then after that, it's like, you know, why do they do that? Because people know out there that they could sell you stuff because they know you're hungry. And because they know you're hungry, let's face it, you're hungry for a relationship, so what happens? You're watching this, you know, here's the commercial, a guy, and you can tell this guy isn't going to marry anyone anytime soon. But he opens up a beer and they fly out of the television set on him. And the guy goes, oh. Now, do you really think any guy in his right mind thinks I'm going to open up? But they buy it anyways, just in case. You know, what have I got to lose? I don't know, self-respect. Anyways, but, oh, or my mic. I've got to do something about that. Okay, so follow me on this, because we're going to get in the text, and it goes quick. Obviously, we only have a few verses. But please understand, God has this way of showing us and revealing to us where we're at in a famine. And by the way, sometimes that's going to be the panic, because there are other things, by the way, that comes with it. In God's presence, I've learned are two very, very distinguishable things. The first is joy. Because we read in Psalm 16, in his presence is the fullness of joy. Now, do you realize what the word fullness fullness means? Fullness means, where in the world? Um, What it means literally is above and beyond what you can contain. It doesn't just mean God's like, well, you're about a four liter. I'm going to give you three liters, point nine, 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 nine. So you can, uh, the whole idea of it is God wants to give you so much more than you can contain. So because what he really wants for every one of us is to start spilling it on everyone else. That's the idea. He really wants us to be messy. And what would it be like if you spilled joy on other people? Now, please hear me out. There's a radical difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. I used to teach a secondary school. And it's a very easy, um, it's a very easy lesson to teach. You ask your students, what would make you happy? If I got a puppy, what would make you happy? If I got a car, what would make you happy? Well, if that boy would go out with me. Okay, so the boy asks you out, you get your car, you get your puppy. Everyone happy? Sure. Then that boy leaves you for somebody else, steals your car, runs over your puppy. Who's happy now? <laughs> right? And the end of it, I was like, wow, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah, and that's the problem with... And no, please understand, God never gives us anything temporary when it comes to his presence. What God gives us is things transcending. Happiness, anything the world can offer you is temporary. You get it, you spend it, it's gone. You get it, it died, it's gone. You got it, it's stolen, it's gone. And and unfortunately, you got it, he left you, it's gone. I mean, and and I'm sorry to bring up the rough issue, but when it comes to the world, that's the best it can give you, so it has to get you thinking in the now. Did you get that? Because, well, get it now. Let's not worry about later, because it's transitive, so you better get it now. Six easy payments. You know what does last is the payments. That's the part. Have you learned that's the way the devil works? He works on credit. Get it up front, pay for it later. And that seems like my whole life before I gave my life to Christ. How about yours? Get tired of that. Joy doesn't have that. 
Joy is the thing that you actually hold on to in those moments when the whole world around you is falling apart. And that's the moment when a famine separates. Because at that moment, when everyone else is running to chase after their dirty sock, whatever that is, to try to satiate, you're not moving because you're actually satisfied because you have the joy of the Lord. And then you start spilling it on other people. Let me warn you, when you spill the joy of the Lord on other people, it's going to make people angry. It's going to take a stagnant Christian and they're going to fly off the handle at you. Oh, I thought you were a normal Christian. You're one of those radicals. Yes, I am. Get over it. I can't stop it. Too bad. Am I the problem or are you the problem? You're judging me now. No, 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 no. I'm just walking in joy. And the problem is everybody wants it. They just don't want the source. They don't want the one who is my joy. The second is peace. Now understand, peace is not what the world offers either. Peace in the world's offering, again, they have to give you something temporary, try to substitute, is emptying yourself of problems. And so you need to find inner peace. (laughs) Inner peace. I'm trying to visualize it right now. Inner peace. Wait a minute, I'm going to light some incense. Inner peace. I'm going to walk around in a circle and go, inner peace, inner peace. But the problem is, the moment you open your eyes, the problems that took away your peace are still there. Right. And now it's another hour later and you have less time to solve your problems than because you were too busy looking for peace. And you know what? Unless you know better, you'll do the same because that's all we know. But let me tell you about another piece. There's a man we know. And he's a performing artist who um, has been performing for 25 years. And we've pretty much known his ministry for about 25 years. Uh, he's um, from Kentucky, uh, who, after having three biological children, um, his, his oldest, his daughter, said, you need, you need to adopt. And she'd leave notes on his pillow. Dad, I think you're out of God's will. You really should pray about it. I mean, she was relentless. And he, he went with it. And, and he, and he uh, adopted, and he adopted three girls from China. And we, I mean, passed across in all kinds of crazy ways. The, the places that, that he would work in, the ministries that he would work from to help get some of these children were ministries we worked with. It was really pretty powerful. And then one day, the youngest, who, by the way, was born in the same month as Ruthie from roughly the same area, um, who also spunky like our daughter is, um, was playing in the front yard. And one of his old, one of his boys, um, he ran over in, the, in, the, in front of our house. She died right there. I mean, and, and, he was, and he was there. All of that happened. And at a point like that, that destroys families. It destroys human beings. I mean, he's given his life for this. And I tell you, this was a man who, who in essence, because of the ministry he started, sponsored more than 20% of what it took for us to adopt our own. I mean, he literally gave us money for that. And this man, I tell you what, at a point like that, all of a sudden, everybody in the world wants to interview him. Would you want to be interviewed after that? But the peace he found, you see, God at a moment like that, it isn't God, has, God can't be a concept at that moment. He can't be an ideal. He can't just be a religion in regards to a politic or just a set of standards or laws. He has to be a very real person because if he's not a real person in a moment like that, you're off a bridge and his marriage is destroyed. But none of that happened. And the Lord shows, hey, look, I'm, I'm your peace. I, I'm your peace. 
And peace is so much more than just finding this sort of lack of tumult. Peace is so much more than that. It's being unified to the one who can still your heart. It's an Israel trip several years ago. We used to go at least once a year. And on this particular one, this was a little unique because on, on this particular one was our first family trip. And on our first family trip, that means we were able to take, you know, our families. That's, why, that's how that works. You got that, right? Um, Eighty people or so on this thing. Two buses. My brother is also a pastor. We're, we're working together on this thing. I take my whole family. And on this, um, we, you know, and by this point, it's a little routine and sort of I know where we're going to go next. I kind of know the temper and inside of the tempo, everything that's going to be happening. And we've gone to this place called Enherod. And Enherod is a place where Gideon's spring is, the place where God whittled Gideon's army down to 300 people. And we acted it out with glow sticks and Dixie cups. I mean, we're all chasing each other. Ah, people are filming us, you know, this whole bit. Oh, this ordered Gideon. And the kids are going mental as we would expect that to go. Now, the good news is the next place is called Sachne, and it's actually a place that's sort of a, um, they call it a hot spring, but by the time it gets to you, it's not even warm. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a lot of space for the kids to run around, and at this point, they're way, way, way hyper, so let's get them on the bus, we'll get them to the next place, and we'll let them run around until they pass out. So it sounds like a great thing. So where our bus gets there first, and as our bus gets there first, now, if you have more than 10 people in Israel, you're required to have a guide, and we've had the same guide for a long time. He's a guy from New York. And his name's Ronnie. And Ronnie says, hey, 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 you need to come out. Now, understand, the Lord had said before this point, some point, look it, I'm going to carry you through some things, and I'm going to be your peace. Are you okay with that? And he says, as long as, long as you carry me, I'm going to, I'll trust you, Lord. Whatever it is, I'm going to trust you. I had no idea what that was. So Ronnie grabs me with the shoes and goes, you need to step outside. And I step out of the bus, and I look, and they're pushing a car off of a little girl. And I look, and I go, oh, my goodness, I take one step. And it's my own. And it's like one of those moments where you don't even remember running, you know. And all of a sudden I'm down and the ground is wet with her. And I'm I'm sitting there and I pull over and I I look and there's Shantae. Her eyes are rolled back into her head. They're amber yellow. And she is not breathing. I'm looking and I go. And I I just remember at that moment, oh, Lord, you said you were going to carry me through some things. I wasn't really sure this is what you meant. And at that moment, all I could say is, Lord, um, Wait a minute, Lord. And I look over, and then there's my wife stepping off the bus. And I'm like, Lord. Um, and one of our assistant pastors, a good friend of ours, man, I'm like, Matt, get to Suzanne. Matt, get to Suzanne. And Suzanne starts to go in hysterics, as a mother would. I look at, and, and at that point, I'm like, and all of a sudden, the, the bus piles out, and every person just, they just start grabbing each other, and they just start praying in little groups. And at that moment, at a moment like that, there is no religion, there's no politic that's going to be of any form of comfort. He's got to be very real. And in a moment like that, I can tell you right now, there was no famine. Even though it was the worst of circumstances. And I said, Lord, I I trust you. And the moment I said that, she starts to breathe. Her eyes roll back into her head. So she had jumped off the bus. She'll argue with me on that, so we won't talk about it. But she was in midair. You can make your own decision. And as she was in midair, this vehicle, the service vehicle, came around, hit her by the feet, slammed her face onto the hood, threw her head back onto the concrete, and proceeded to run over. Now, it flipped her foot completely backwards as they're pushing the car off. And I look at this, and I'm like, oh, Lord. And so they, they, and the, the uh, emergency people show up. They only speak Hebrew. They're trying to, and at this point, Sean, I'm saying, okay, I'm asking questions. How are your ribs? Can you breathe? How is your head? How is your neck? 
you know, the kind of questions you would ask as an emergency t- t- person. And then so you're, you're asking these, and they show up, and then they're going, you know, she's going, ah, ah, this poor girl's trying to come too, and they're speaking to her in a language she doesn't understand, right? And I'm like, honey, what hurts? And she goes, my jacket hurts. Okay, we're in trouble. So, and they're often, well, why don't you talk to them then, okay? You know, and, and she just starts, you know, and they, they scrape her up, and, and we're like, Lord, I, I don't know what's going to happen from this, but I trust you. I, I trust you. That's all I can do is I can trust you. And, and, and beloved, it's moments like that that God, God knows this stuff ahead of time, and he's, and he's already prepared. This is an appointment that you have with him. Now, obviously, I'll, for the sake of time, I won't elaborate on the rest of it at the moment, but she's obviously here, and she's, she's as normal as she's going to be. So glory to God for that. Um, and I'm so thankful. Within a couple months, my wife calls me and says, hey, Ruthie's throwing up blood. She's in the emergency room. And I thought, oh, really? Well, that's two out of three. And then it's Susanna who says, hey, um, I'm, losing, I'm losing sight in a part of my eye. Uh, wait a minute, really? What does it look like? She had a thing called a branch retinal arterial occlusion. And what that means is she basically had a stroke in her eye. There was a blood clot that could have gone in one of two places. It would have killed her if it had gone into her brain. But instead, it went into her eye and she basically had a stroke in her eye. So she has this one spot that's sort of smeared over. That's the only spot that I like to stand in. And I'll say, how do I look? Um, <laughs> but within six months, I almost lost all three of my girls. And that's not to ensue pity. I'm just here to tell you, I know the peace of God. And to be honest, and I dare I say it, you're never really going to know God's peace until you need to know God's peace. I mean, there are times where it's just like, okay, the kids are acting crazy or the bills are due. I really could use your peace. But that's nothing in comparison. At those moments, it's just like, Lord, could you just be my strength enough so that I'm not crabby and misrepresenting you? Does that make sense? It's kind of cool to have the background music while we do this. And so listen, in all of those things, indicator, motivator, separator, those moments when a famine gets to the point where it really does separate, let me say one thing, we'll get into our text and we'll write through it. In Amos 8.11, God speaks about another famine. And this is the one that's of the greatest concern to him. And even though he says it's something that he's going to have his hand all over, and he says it this way, it's a famine, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. There's going to be a day when people will be starving to death because the one thing they really need they'll never get, which is the word of God. The one thing about the word of God is it has all of your spiritual nutrients. And I do like that. But let me tell you what Jesus said. In John 6:35, if you come to him, you'll never hunger. And if you believe in him, you'll never thirst. In Psalm 37:19, about the upright in the days of famine, they'll be satisfied. Many of you are familiar with Romans 8.35 that says, even in the worst of famine, it can't separate you from the love of God. That's in Christ Jesus. In Revelation 7, it tells us that there will be a day when the Lord removes those from this world. And when he does, they'll never thirst anymore. They'll never hunger anymore. And here's the thing. There are two kinds of famine. The famine around us and the famine inside of us. And one of them is a really bad thing, the one inside The good news is that can be satisfied with a simple prayer. Jesus died on a cross to save you. And he gave you that hunger so you would cry out to him. And beloved, 
If you don't, you'll die. And you'll spend eternity away from him. And he did not create you for that. So much so that he would die and raise again just so you could be with him. Have you said yes to him? Now go back to our text and let's close this up. Because I really should teach the text, shouldn't I? Seven years of plenty ended, which were in the land of Egypt. The seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, verse 54. One of the things this famine did is it proved the word of the Lord. The famine was in all lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. Did you see the separator? All of a sudden, what happened is, out of obedience of the son of promise, there was a place that was satisfied. So much so that the scripture had already taught us was abundance. There was so much it couldn't even be counted. And all of a sudden, there's only one place in the world at this moment, as it says here, that actually is satisfied. And this son of promise has abundance. And so it separated Joseph from the rest of the world. It separated those who followed Joseph from the rest of the world. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Don't miss this, because this is something God did by creating this famine. Because this is something the Lord did. See, the people had been crying out to Pharaoh, right? Because Pharaoh was in charge of the Ka. He was in charge of running the universe. God has this way. Hear me out, beloved, in our last few minutes. He has this way of systematically dismantling, disqualifying, in any other way, dissing anything you're going to hold on to but him. Some of you are old enough to remember, and that wasn't long ago, Y2K. Remember that? People are jumping out of windows because of that. Some of you are old enough to remember Black Monday. Those days when people who put all their trust in their money and in stocks in the stock market plummeted to the ground. And people were saying, oh, my whole life is over. They've lost millions, some of these people. What is it you trust? Do you realize what happens in Exodus chapters 3 through 12? God systematically takes down every god that's worshipped in Egypt, finally Pharaoh, so that at the end of it all, the only God standing is the only God. And God, you know, some of us, isn't that your testimony? God systematically took down everything else he trusted so that the only thing left standing was him. And that's what he does here. The people cried to Pharaoh. By God's grace, Pharaoh had learned better. So when they cried to Pharaoh for bread, and maybe that's where you're at at this point. You're in a famine and you're crying out to a counselor. You're crying out to, you know, you're calling 1-900-DIAL-A-FRIEND. You know, you're crying out to, you know, whatever it is at this point. Oh, just give me something for relief. Well, I'm here to tell you that if I could be Pharaoh for the moment in this statement, I would say, go to the son of promise. He has abundance. Anywhere else you're going to go, you're going to starve. You're going to find yourself hungrier. And you're going to do whatever you can to try to satisfy and everything you do leaves you more and more and more famished while the sun is abundant. Go to the sun. Pharaoh says to the Egyptians, go to Joseph. And whatever he says, do. Because this son of promise has abundance and he can take care of every one of you. And what's interesting is he doesn't say go to, Pharaoh, go to Joseph and his posse, go to Joseph and his brothers. That wouldn't be good at the moment yet. But what we find is there's one person, one person in the entire earth, one person in the entire earth that can take care of every one of us here at this moment. And there could be people saying, Joseph, I don't, want, I don't like Joseph. I want more choices than Joseph. I don't want a Hebrew. I don't, I don't like that. That's closed-minded. 
You know, you'll get hungry enough, you'll go to Joseph or you'll starve to death. So which one do you want? Are you angry because I'll tell you that I believe Jesus is the only way? Why do I believe it? Because Jesus said he was the only way and I believe him. The bottom line is none of us deserve a way. Praise God there is. And you know what? Why would God only give you one way? To make your choice simple. Why does coffee take off and tea doesn't? You walk over, you can get your coffee. Maybe some places you can pick Arabian or Alaskan or whatever. You can tell I'm not a coffee fan. If you go in to get tea, it's like 65 choices. Would you like the red? Would you like the black? Would you like the green? Would you? You're like, ah, uh, I'll take a coffee. You know. And I realize it's like the simpler the choice, the easier it is to make. God made it really simple. You say, well, how did a loving God create a place like hell? It makes the choice even easier. Why would you want to go there? How can any logical, intelligent human being say, oh, I'd rather risk it and try that? And the whole bottom line is he loves you when he wants you. So follow me on this. Whatever the son, whatever this boy says, go there. And it says in verse 56, the famine was over the face of the earth. You know what that means? That the hunger was universal. Everybody on the planet was hungry. And everyone on the planet had to go to one place. And you go, well, that's impractical. How did the people from New Zealand get there? Listen, in the end of it all, God knows how to get you there. You could swim. You could fly on a swimming polar bear. God could do it any way he wants to. The bottom line is he's not going to let you starve to death. He's going to give you a choice. You're going to let you starve to death or you're going to find yourself with your hunger met. And it says then Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians because all the abundance is held in one man's hands. The famine was very severe. The word severe, the word is chazach. And this is very key. Chazak is the same word when we read about hardening a heart. And the idea of it, it is unyielding. It is solid and unyielding. In other words, this famine, and I'm going to warn you about this, it's unyielding. There isn't a point where it's ever going to give up. It's either going to take you to the grave or it's going to get conquered. You need to make your choice. And maybe you're in that place where you're still saying, you know, I'm still trying to figure it out. Well, look at ask the Lord to show you. He will. The famine, this famine that is and this universal hunger is one that God can meet instantly. But I tell you what, if you want to, it's never going to stop. Finally, verse 57, all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in the lands. And there's our severe word again. Wouldn't that be beautiful if we could even find that in this room right now? If we were really willing to cry out to the son of promise, Jesus, the Christ, and say, all right, Lord, I have hungers. Now, here's the thing. I genuinely believe he can meet every hunger. You'd say, well, what about my hunger for sex? What about my hunger for companionship? What about my hunger for importance? What about my hunger for, for purpose? But I'm like, if you lay all of that into the hands of the Lord, he knows how to take care of you. He genuinely knows how to take care of you. Here's the thing. God's not the storehouse to give you stuff. He is the answer. I guarantee you, he knows how to say, look it, I will satisfy you so fully, and I'm not getting weird, I will satisfy you so fully that when you approach a relationship, for instance, and you're a single person, you won't go with a state of desperation. What a terrible place that is. Hi, I'm desperate. I really need somebody to complete me. Could it be you? Can you imagine? I feel like if somebody does that, run. I mean, for goodness sakes, right? But let's be honest. Isn't that how we kind of run into things, right? We buy cards that say, I love you because of the way you make me feel. And if you stop making me feel that way, I'll stop loving you. Is that what that says? What would happen if two people that were so satisfied in Christ met each other? And all of a sudden it's like, look, at I have extra love and I was hoping I could dump it somewhere. Can I dump it on you? 
And the other person says, funny, I have more love than I could possibly handle. I was hoping to spill it on you. Wow, sounds like a good deal. And you know what's interesting? That's why we had kids. We had a daughter and went, wow, look at all this love we could dump on. I think we still have extra. We should have another child. And you know what? It's crazy because it's, it's funny. It's sort of like this thing. He just keeps dumping more in it because he has abundance. So two questions and we'll pray. Christian, right now, where are you trying to get your appetites met? Is the world your counsel? Is Oprah your counselor? You know, are you still trying to get your needs met on, you know, I, I really need a uk? Because in the end of it all, you're tired of chasing after things only to find yourself hungrier. It's like drinking salt water and you're thirstier when you're done. Christians, because we are the ones who are supposed to be representing the peace and the joy and abundance that comes with walking with him. It's time for us to start purifying our pursuits. But if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, why wouldn't I invite you to that now? At this moment, Jesus says again, if you come to me, you'll never hunger anymore. He knows how to meet you there. And literally the tenses in the, in the uh, Greek are, as long as you come to me, you'll be full. You keep coming, you'll keep getting full. You keep coming, you keep getting full. Whoever believes, you keep believing, the, the, you keep believing in me, you'll, keep, you'll no longer be thirsty. And it's like, you know, I've learned in the presence of the Lord is a continual feast. And I like eating. And I love it. And I tell you what, as we go to prayer, can we be honest with ourselves and cry out to him, Lord, please? We even around right now, I, I, I just I just don't want to be a fool or a poser to pretend I'm so much more than I am. You know, I've chased after the things of the world and I'm I've taken all of the things the world has sold me and they've got nowhere with it. They've left me worse. God, right now, I, I just pray that you would just don't allow me to be such a fool. To wake up one day and have all those things that the marketers have worked so hard for me to get. Because they know when their own conniving that I'll follow them and I'll buy more and chase more and seek more and, and then be emptier. And then more frustrated, more confused. Because in the end of it all, I found myself now with all the things that were promised and none of them worked. And Lord, you know, I know what that means to, to feel like a freak because somehow now that I had it, once I had it, I was worse off than when I started. Lord, I, I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be in a place, Lord, where somehow the, the, you're for saving, but the world's for fun. Somehow in it, Jesus, you're, you're for eternity and for matters of eternity and for heaven. But now on earth, I'm going to try to get it elsewhere. When Jesus, you promised to be my life. As Paul would say, to live is you, Jesus, and to die is gain. And, and I know I could never say to die is gain if I can't say to live is you. And I just, I just want to pray right now for my brothers and sisters and myself here. Forgive us. I, I just want to stand in the, in the gap as a priest, God, and say, please forgive us. Please forgive us for where we've knowingly made stupid choices. And God, I recognize that 
We are in a desperate place here, in a, in a world that is really famished. But Lord, let every famine be on the outside, not on my inside, not on our inside. That we could be satisfied in your word, satisfied in your presence. And Lord, in that, that we could stop dizzying ourselves by running from one thing to the next, trying to find the next fix. That's so horribly temporary. Thank you for Joseph's example. Thank you for setting us up in this text to show that you are the Lord of the famine. And the famine indicates, Lord, whether it's in me or out of me. And, and Lord, I could see even in this that, that there are times, Lord, where you will allow us to experience that famine because it, it indicates inside of me and, and us that, that we're really not with you like we should be. And in the moment we sort of chase after other stuff and trade you in, we'll find ourselves in that place. We'll also see moments, Lord, where we'll see famine around us. And at those moments, we can see our satisfaction in you. And you separate us from the rest of the world in doing that. And the world looks at us and thinks we're some kind of freak. And to be honest, we are. I mean, compared to their circumstances, certainly we are. Because we really want to have your peace. And we really want to have your joy. But we recognize it isn't like that's something you give. It's what you are. So be our joy. And be our peace. And in that, then, Lord, fill us so full over abundantly so that we would spill you on everyone else. Please, Lord. And God, I pray that if for those, if there be any in here right now that have, that have not said yes to you or they're fighting you or they did once, but they've been living this life that's not the life you intend and they've been fighting you and whatever it is, Lord. And in that right now, Lord, that famine is a motivator. And I pray, Lord, right now for that famine, Lord, where they're just chasing after their, the things that look like they're sock in your comparison. And yet, Lord, in all of that, that, that right now show them that they can get those needs met. That they would cry out to you like they should. Not just to Pharaoh or to the world, Lord, but to the Son of Promise, Jesus, that you are. And so if there be any or many here who have not said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, and they know they need to, the Holy Spirit has, has spoken to you and said, what do you have to lose but this famine? And you feel like you're walking around in the wilderness complaining about manna. And right now, if that's you, I just want to pray this prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end of it all, if you agree, I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I confess to you. I come to you hungry. I'm, 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 I'm hungry for, for real companionship. I'm hungry, Lord, to get this filth and this guilt off of me, to get these, these, uh, this, this avalanche of regret in my life off of me. I want to be new. I want to be clean. I want to be pure. And you tell us, you tell me that you died on the cross so that all of my guilt and my filth and my shame could be covered and removed and cast away as far as east is from west, remembered no more. And I want that. I want that so much. I want that for real in my life. And so I, I just say right now that if Jesus, you were really willing to die on the cross for all of, all of me, all of the rotten me, all of that I am, and, and take that person and let them die with you so that I could become a new creation, I say yes, Jesus. I say yes to you. 
I say yes to your offer. I say yes to your grace. I say yes to your redemption. And and Jesus says, you rose again, just as was promised. You want to be the Lord of my life, to not let me become that person again. And I say yes, to let you be the Lord of my life. And I don't want any idols. I don't want to fight you over any area of my life. And if you say no, then it's a no. If you say yes, then it's a yes. But Jesus, I just want to trust you. And I, I know I need help with that, but you'll be all the help I need. So I say yes to not only you as my Redeemer and redemption, but you as my Lord and my, and my Master. And in that, please be my peace. <clears throat> please be my joy. Be my satisfaction. That while the rest of the world is chasing after the next thing, I can remain still and rest in you knowing you're God. So I give myself to you and I trust you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. And now this commercial break. (laughs) Friends, thank you. Thank you for going through the word. You know what will be next week? Joseph's going to meet up with his with his bros. And that's going to be a real fun area of what happens when your past catches up with you. So and this is a past where Joseph didn't do something wrong. So please, um, read ahead if you would. Thank you for the honor of being your pastor. I consider that a fantastic honor and the privilege of serving you in the Word. God bless you, saints.